Hello and welcome to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. This is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences. And regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. This week's show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy is about post-traumatic stress disorder. It is a two-parter and both parts involve ex-police officers. This week, I have an interview with Simon Gillard, who was a police officer for more than 15 years before he was invalided out of the, the force with post-traumatic stress. He is now an advocate for others with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety in the emergency services, military and the wider community. And he's just published his first book, Life Sentence, A Police Officer's Battle with PTSD. Simon started out so excited about being a police officer. He would never have imagined that he would no longer be part of the police force now. So what happened? It was a pretty cool day, actually. I was 10 years of age. Um, I think I was in year five, and um, the two police came, just as, as one of those days they do. They came to my primary school, and um, they had the police car there, and there was two, two men, and... Um, two constables and had their firearms and they were just you know quite tall and and just you know so I don't know inspiring and inspirational all that sort of stuff and I just looked and went oh my god there's two these guys are gods and we could play in the police car and you know and they'll show us their handcuffs and stuff and I just went wow this is so cool and they'll tell us about safety and you know um you know just just talking to us and it was I, I thought they were gods and I thought that's what I want to be I'd love to be a policeman and that little boy then grew up and I went through high school and I, I never lost my motivation to do that and um you know, did my agency and all that stuff and I joined at 19 years of age straight after high school so I was rather young and um and I progressed and the most part of my career was as a detective i did like crime shows as well so that was always a good thing yeah. um so that's You're where I <laughs> yeah i really um i really enjoyed the crime shows and i always wanted to be a detective so i was in for the police for around 16 years and about 11 years of that was um doing detective type work or undercover type work it we always start in general duties and being in general duties is um, usually probably general duties for that very um, that that very hyper vigilant state is probably at a higher level than a detective mm -hmm. and the reason being is is that you're in uniform mm -hmm. and you're predominantly being um, what should you, you're reactive but you're also very proactive in what you're doing because mm -hmm. you're out and about the whole time and you're the first to the scene. Mm -hmm. But what happens when, and what's in general duties is, you're the first of the scene, there's a lot of hypervigilance, is you come and then you leave and you can, theoretically, you do some paperwork and you go home for the day and then you might have four or five days off. You don't have to worry about anything you're regarding... You also put a uniform on and take it off. So there's Correct. a mental bit there, isn't it? There is, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you've got like two hats, I guess. Costume, yes. yes, absolutely. And... Being a detective is, um, you used to get called out at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday morning and there's someone who's been stabbed or shot 
and you've got to switch on straight away and they'll say there's three people in in the dock and they've shot someone stabbed someone to an arm robbery sexual assault it could be anything and you've got to switch on straight away and you've got a guide on the phone after you've just maybe had four hours sleep you've gone to bed and um you're not really 100 percent there but you've got to switch on straight away and that investigation and what happens with that is and exactly what you said is you become very involved in every aspect of it so you know the criminals um if if the you know you've you've either found them or you 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 come to them straight away um the family the victim and it's an ongoing process and can in some cases before it goes to district or supreme court for the more you know heavier matters it can be a couple of years and um it's something that is always there with you so you come home and you might have 20 of these sort of cases so you have to you become a like a superior project program project manager however you want to call it well you're investigating say a homicide at the same time you have a major sexual assault or a a pedophile matter or you might have an armed robbery or something drastic look there's all of these really heavy cases that hold you know 20 to 25 plus years you know life sentence in in Mm. in jail and what usually happens though and where you can um, sometimes fall apart in that space is everyone's matter is as important as everyone else and you've got to imagine being a victim you think that but the problem is the first and as they call it the first you know 48 72 hours of any sort of major crime is the most vital part so if i got called out i might have 20 cases that are really high high maintenance profile even you know to the area of homicide and things like that but if someone was stabbed and they were critical or it was a grievous bodily harm matter that case at that time becomes so critical to get all your evidence your crime scene done all your investigations done with statements of victims witnesses um securing you know footage from you know cctv telephone records all of that all of those things um you don't want to miss any evidence securing you know evidence from clothing or at the scene and making sure it can get you know tested for fingerprints dna so you can't miss anything but what happens then is it puts those other really high profile critical matters on the back burner and so you're always chasing your tail and it doesn't leave you you don't have as you said and it's probably a good way of putting it where you can take the costume off at the end of the day and you've been a first responder to that job um and then you can take it off and then progress on and i guess that's similar to um paramedics and things as well they'll go to the hospital take the patient on to the next job um fire brigade as well but in the the criminal investigation side it's just an ongoing process and it never leaves you sometimes for years yeah i was going to say it feels like it does and of course if it doesn't you're then held to account for that because when you're in in court oh you don't remember oh i see oh have you just woken up well is there a possibility you might have been a bit groggy and then the twist and the injustice Uh, that comes in there absolutely and you've just got to like and that's another huge thing because everything you do when you're a criminal investigator or or detective is you are court focused Mm. so you think ahead with every little thing you do documenting everything making sure everything is done handled correctly with exhibits because exactly like you said when you're in front of a jury and you have a barrister standing there they'll try to pick to pieces anything they can which becomes you know um 
you, you don't want to obviously look like a fool, but you also want to bring the person to justice who's, who's committed the offence. So you have to really be on your toes and make sure that everything is, you know, dot your I's, cross your T's and, and done with that court process in mind. Absolutely. Can you imagine that? The pressure of knowing that everything you do will be picked apart by a barrister in court and you have so many victims hoping that you'll be able to get them the outcome they're looking for. Just beggar's belief really, doesn't it? The constant pressure that your nervous system will be under. Now, After the break, we'll hear again from Simon as he talks about the sort of things he covered and the sort of things he saw. Welcome back. You're listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. Today we're talking about post-traumatic stress with Simon, who was a police officer for 15 years before he was invalided out with post-traumatic stress. I've been... Um in many, many, many brawls, <laughs> wrestles, fights. Um, you sort of become the best jiu-jitsu fighter in the world. Um, boxing, you don't stand up and do boxing. It's take down, put handcuffs on, and you wrestle and all that sort of stuff if you get, you know, alcohol's a big a big drama with that side of things because especially these days, and we, we sort of called it the ice age, but um, I went from heroin when I was at Marrickville in Newtown and places like that they became sort of the epicenter after Cabramatta got um very uh the police there very involved in and what we call displacement so it moved from Cabramatta when they got very involved the police there and hit it to Marrickville where I was working for about three four years and Newtown where I was there also for about the same amount of time and um so those type of matters was were heroin related but then it moved from that into ice Mm -hmm. And ice was ice is probably other than alcohol. Alcohol is really bad when people are drunk. You can't reason with them. It's really really difficult. I remember it took four of us or five of us one day. This this woman, she was only in her early twenties, but she would have been forty five kilograms, ringing wet. And it took four or five of us to hold her down. The other really really bad thing with ice, it's it's probably the most um, evil drug you could ever go near. Like it is just it, it, the the changes in the people I've come across on ice. The changes in personality are a split second. Mm. I'll never forget. I went to Manly Hospital and I was with a young probation. I was a sergeant, and I went to Manly Hospital and I went with a young probationary constable girl. And there were three blokes there wanting to get into the hospital. The security called us because their friend was in there. They hadn't slept for three and a half, four days on ice, and the security guard had to call us. They would change and they were big rugby looking blokes change from going yeah Sarge no worries and then they just start going <sighs> it's like psycho- psychosis yeah and I investigated a murder investigation with exactly the same principle um, it's like psychosis and this um, young girl is actually a really it was a homicide investigation I had for many years and it really I became very very close to the family and it was a real tough investigation and he um, ended up, they were smoking ice, and he ended up bashing her over the head with a brick mm. numerous, numerous times and then dumped her body and hit her body. But that's what ice does, and it really is. It, it, you formulate psychosis from lack of sleep, but the drug itself, and it's amazing. You can even look it up. If you look at ice images, and they've taken photos of people who have been um, arrested before, over a series of time and the first arrest is 
Um, for example, one I'll never forget is a pretty girl. She's like 19, blonde hair, blue eyes, beautiful. Yeah. And then it'll show photos of her arrest photos over the next you know couple of years when she started using ice. And she looks 55. I did some research on it with a professor as well. And that they say with ice as a level, and, and I'll just throw one out there. If, if you have heroin and they've got this scale, I can't remember the exact name of the scale, but heroin might be... 1000 on this scale in regards to addiction and ice was 11,000 so that is how easily you can become addicted to ice off one and they call it you'll never and they've been you know it's in the police they you know the ice users said yep yeah, wish i was off this crap i can't get off it it's all it thinks about and it's all it wants to do um and they always say you never forget and it's called a toke You'll never forget your first hoke wow. because that starts you on the path. And like my serious thing for anyone is never, ever, ever, and don't even go near that stuff. It is the worst thing to ruin your life. Um, there was on one occasion where uh, the, the hospital staff were telling us that there was a batch of ice mixed with pool cleaner and that's mm. actually quite common. But in this one body, basically, mm. it attacked all the cells in the body, which is what pool cleaner does. It attacks cells. Yep. But the person was melting from the inside out, yep. and there was nothing they could do. And That's I'm sure that must be more common than just the one thing the doctor told me. It is. Uh, absolutely. I've, I've seen people who have... have, have died from ice use and there have been cases that i have seen where it eats you from the inside out um i've seen a woman when i was at i think it was the end of my time at marrickville she was on ice and she kept feeling as though things were crawling across her skin she scratched her arm so badly it was covered in blood and she scratched scratched through all the layers of skin and you could see almost down to the bone she kept scratching and scratching didn't feel the pain from the ice and we had to take her to the hospitals yeah. like she was really really injured but she goes no i've got things crawling on me there's something crawling on me and you don't know what you're taking no. it is just it's a it's a mixed bag and um funnily enough and the reports now and this is something even to to show um, the community in regards to it is the outlaw motorcycle gangs now are not allowing ice to be cooked or mixed or done anymore because it is sending their own people inside who are doing it it is sending them mad it is sending them psychotic and having forming psychosis and they can't be relied upon and they're actually a detriment to the club so they're saying no more cooking of ice because it's bringing them undone crazy in its own initiative to start it but um it's not worth it they've seen the effects and it's horrendous and it's just it's just the most it's the worst drug ever i'm sure you'll all agree that's fairly sober listening to after the break, Simon shares with us how much or how little was offered in terms of support during those years. Today, we are talking about post-traumatic stress. Simon was a police officer for 15 years before he was invalided out of the service with post-traumatic stress. And in this section, we're going to take a long, hard look at what support is in these organisations for frontline workers. In 
my 16 years, I never had one debrief in 16 years. So, yeah. Um, so it was always a case of the reliance is on the officer individual. But what you just said is very true. It's day in, day out that we have to deal with the worst things that you could ever imagine, um, see things that you could only, you know, watching a movie sometimes and you go that can't be real but what happens is when you deal with them day in day out we used to call it there's two things we used to call it we used to call it the teflon effect where what you see is you let it hit you but fall off or we used to call it if it does affect you in any way because you do try to what we used to do is call compartment you know compartment compartmentalization sorry i got that out eventually so you compartment it within yourself but the problem with that is and then you wear a mask so yeah so we used to call it wearing the mask and some of my talks i do it's called ptsd unmasked Mm, Good title. yeah because it's a mask you wear because you need to compartmentalize these things you see and issues because you won't survive you wouldn't survive a you wouldn't survive a week in the police if, if you didn't do that. So once again, I come back to that resilience factor. This is all about enduring, and it's unhealthy resilience. It's enduring adversity. Eventually, you're going to stumble and fall over. And changes need to be made, and slowly they are being made. But it needs to be more a case of it's not so much for the officer or the person who's just done service in the military or, you know, paramedics for it. All emergency, you know, first responders and emergency services, it's more about why you haven't seen someone rather than you having to. So it's got to be a cultural change, but it's got to be a cultural change from the top down. So I want to see the bosses and the top echelon. I'll just use police as the example, but it does cover everything. I said military and the rest. Is they come and see the officer or the person and they have an idea of what they've gone to and maybe some really bad things they've had to see and rather than it up to the officer to go see someone i want the top echelon to say and the bosses to say i've had a look and you've seen some pretty bad things in the last three couple of weeks have you logged yourself in to go see eap employees assistance program or see a counselor and if they turn around and say no, I, I, I want that top echelon and that, that, that culture to be changed for them to go, well, you need to right now. Otherwise, I'm concerned about you that perhaps you're a sociopath and you're not getting affected or you're compartmentalizing this, which is going to bring you undone. Yeah. So it needs to be a whole, whole complete change and turnaround rather that it's okay not to be okay and it's more acceptable to get the help. Yeah rather than the other way where the officer has to diagnose themselves. But how do you diagnose yourself when you're seeing so much bad stuff? Like at what point do you go, I need to go see someone now? It needs to be the other way around where it's a given that you go and see someone. It's a given like every two weeks or whatever may be. Mm. You absolutely switch off and how do you then differentiate a person who has just committed a crime where you're not having any feeling yourself and part of policing is and i've always been an empathetic person to be well-rounded and and you know great police officer you need to have empathy so switching that off is what you're actually doing is 
you're becoming like a human robot. You're switching off your feelings, your emotions, and you have to for, I'd probably put it best as saying this, you have to for career survival, because the way the culture is now, it's not acceptable, but also for um, your own survival as well to keep going. And that empathy is so heavily required because how do you speak to a family when someone, you know, you've got to give a death message, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had to do that myself when I was slapped across the face and, you know, and all I was doing was my job and I was like 21 years of age, 22, and it was really tough. And um, But I had to hug that lady so she wouldn't hit me and I said, I'm so sorry, but you can't hit me. Mm-hmm. Now, how can you not have that empathy to understand that she slapped me across the face, which is obviously wrong. Like, I mean, I was just you doing my job. Right. Imagine if we had a police force and imagine what the community would think if, and sometimes you get that, the, the community go police, are, in some police they just don't like, and police like that, but sometimes that's self-survival mm-hmm. and they have to close off. Mm-hmm. And there's two ways I look at that, and one is called vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. And so people talk to me and I get asked a lot of questions sometimes in regards to the numbers and how many do I think in in the police force or the different police forces who would have post-traumatic stress disorder. So post-traumatic stress disorder is when you're the victim. Vicarious trauma is where your view on the world is damaged. You never as a policeman, and I wish I did, but I never did, get called up and say, come over, we're having a barbecue, we want to have a sausage with you or a steak. Mm -hmm. Never, ever happened. You're always called to see bad things. Right, you're always there to try to help people, save the day, whatever's going on, and so your view on the world becomes damaged and it becomes negative. Then you formulate another thing, which is even worse, and and it's a two-folded thing. It's called compassion fatigue, or secondary traumatic um, stress. Mm -hmm. So, for self-survival, you have to close off the empathy. You have to close off the the compassion because if you don't and you have that empathy and get too involved your glass will topple over it's getting too full and you're opening up that compartment inside as well so i remember when i first walked in at 19 years of age newtown police station and there were sergeants in there from the 1960s walking around and they'd been in for 35 years and they're waiting for retirement they completely had compassion fatigue and sick and so what they did they were so grumpy and angry about everything in the world is that they'd lost all compassion mm-hmm. for victims whatever what does he want what are, you know what's it oh, all right oh, go away mate tell someone they'd lost all compassion for their own self-being mm-hmm. but this is really dangerous so when i get asked that question about ptsd and they say between you know 10 and 20 percent unless there's something really wrong that we need to look at a particular officer 90 to 99 percent even would have compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma for survival simon you are talking about things changing right from the top and it needs to happen immediately because even though your training was 16 years ago 17 years ago has anything changed now slowly but surely there are small changes so they're bringing in a lot of um what they call peer support and things like that but once again like i love peer support i think it's fantastic 
But once again, it comes down to the reliability and the reliance. And remember I told you about the mask? Yes. For the peer support officer to pick something up, which can be difficult, mm-hmm. but it still comes down to that reliance on the officer to go and speak to the peer support officer. Yes. And this is where the issue still lies with that and where it needs to come from the top. If I went and saw through the Employees Assistance Program a psychologist and I broke down, which I did, and completely cried and broke down and said I wasn't sleeping and spoke about the pedophile ring that I investigated and I said I couldn't sleep and I was worried about my son and I was just, you know, having triggers and flashbacks and nightmares, all those sorts of things. I'm going to get asked, even if I break down completely, two questions. Am I suicidal or am I homicidal? Mm-hmm. And if breaks down to two-dimensional questions. It does at the end of the day. And if I say no to both of them, they may schedule another visit. I go back the next day as Simon Gillard running a detective's office with my firearm on me. If I see a peer support officer and break down and cry and just say I'm not coping and this is what's happening, such as the same thing I'm saying, Straight away, they'll get with the culture how it is because everyone's so worried and scared and they don't know how to deal with it. The inspector involved, um, double padlock his firearm, and you feel persecuted. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than helping, they make you... Yeah. They just make it such a big deal that you're scared to open. You're scared to open up. And then the next day, instead of Simon Gillard being in the detective's office as a detective sergeant running the office... I'm in a constable's administration role without a firearm on. So everyone in that station will go, oh, what's going on there? People won't approach. They'll say something. Yeah. Is he losing his job? Is he what they used to call gone booey? Yeah. And it makes you sicker. Yeah. It makes you feel as though you're, you're being persecuted and punished. So the culture needs to change from the top. It just can't be... You know, it can't be Band-Aid with, you know, things like, and, and peer support and all that stuff is great. And the other issue is there, you might like the peer support officer, so you're not going to open up to them. Um, and for, for industries, not just the police, $13 billion a year for mental illness from um, being reactive, not proactive. And I think if you get in early exactly with the debriefs, and everyone handles things differently. So I think it needs to be the case that, and... So many good organisations do it now. And I'll give you Lifeline, for example. They've got a tough job where they're listening to people on the phone and they don't know the end result and, you know, they could only hope what happens to that person. But what those guys do at the end of the day, they have a round circle debrief. And I love round with dialect. Everyone's allowed to talk and have an opinion and it's like dialect peer support with a peer support officer there. And everyone's in the same boat. And it becomes... A cultural change it becomes a natural thing because talk is therapy so at the end of the day allow half an hour for everyone to sit around and the peer support officer or the sergeant or inspector sitting there going um john you went to that motor vehicle accident where that young kid was really hurt and went to hospital and he's you know in a really you know critical condition how are you feeling and then once the culture starts changing he can start talking and then he can and there's no problem he's not going to be persecuted it's okay to be sad it's okay to not be okay and that's where it needs to change and things like that is what needs to happen and lifeline do it the police can do it they all can do it you're in your team and then the, the beauty of that as well is the bonds that are formed around that because you're really getting to know someone 
rather than the human robot wearing a mask. So your partner should go, wow, we're human beings. And yeah, I felt that way too. It allows for talk. It allows for that, that open connection to, um, to progress then, like I said about healthy resilience. How can we ask our officers to be compassionate when it's not safe for them to have that fragility or sensitivity because it would leave them open to being at risk of post-traumatic stress or vicarious trauma? We need to have an opt-out approach, not an opt-in approach. That was very clear by what um, Simon has shared. Red flags and sirens should go off for anyone who doesn't turn up or make time for those appointments. You know, they shouldn't be promoted without seeing it on their their record, that they are getting support, that they are recognising that the job that they're doing is incredibly stressful. We can't have an environment where people are scared to open up because what they've seen is that when people do open up, they're taken off general duties, no fire, and put behind the desk. There's an element of shame in it, isn't there? I actually want to say it turn the other way, going, thank God there's something on your personal file that you got help. Yes. There's three of them. I'm so proud of you. That is a really good thing for you to get promotion. But at the moment with the culture, it is if something like that's on your personal file and I want to go for an superintendent's job, yeah. oh, that's going to go against me. I can't put my hand up. I can't raise anything. So, Simon, is it possible that... The, the less you've got on your file, the more you've learned to conform, shut off, be cold, the more like, I'm not telling everybody that, you know, the higher up you get, the more of a sociopath you are, yeah. but that you actually are less and less able to express the things that clearly hurt you and clearly have upset you. You've just learned how not to. So if they've learned how to, how can they... How can they not say to the people who are coming up behind them, look, I've done it, suck it up and you do it? We always used to say uh, how soon they forget. Mm. If you're at the grassroots level, um, I think everyone, and, and I really look, have done research and looked into the police in particular, but I think everyone has a, a, um, a point. Now, my point came up i tried to after the that big pedophile had a number of homicides in that i tried to move to a different area emergency services where i wasn't investigating those types of crimes and things like that but they followed me i i had briefs of evidence my detective work I had multiple cases that followed me and i was still doing all of the work and the pedophile all that stuff yeah. but a lot of police you'll find is there's a moment in time where that they can't take any more. The, the glass is full. The glass is full. The compartment it doesn't have any more shelves. If you want to, we can use metaphors, analogies. Yeah. And then they move to those types of positions where then they become um, more of a office yeah, super foot administrator. Yeah, or um, one of the higher, they don't have to, you know, go to that particular incident or job the other place they get reported on yeah like getting hands dirty that's right and so they move themselves out of it and i think that's where you can get the longevity Mm -hmm. with them climbing up and then they become a a superintendent or assistant commissioner Mm -hmm. or you know deputy commissioner all those sorts of things but really realistic then is they're um in like a ceo of a company or things like that then they're not at the grassroots ground level and i think looking at it i've seen there's a point in time, and it's a point in time, and it's very different, but it's very close. But around that 15-year mark, around that sort of period, is sort of that end of that point in time that if you're still 
on that front line, you're doing really well and it's, I don't know how you're still going, but there is a point in time, 15 to 20 years, where they do move to those, for example, education development officer. Those type of, you know what I mean? Those type of, you know, areas, you know, domestic violence liaison officer. Well, you're not getting your hands dirty, so what happens is the general duties will go out, they'll get their hands dirty with it, and they do a referral then. So then the lady or man who's been domestically assaulted, maybe, they'll come in and they'll see it, and that officer who could be a sergeant or whatever will then talk to them about it. But they're not seeing and not on that front line. And that really is what happens for the longevity, how you can continue. And it's about treating as an investment. Mm. Because it can be staved off, like early intervention, it's so key, Mm -hmm. but allowing that. And moreover, just recognising that, why haven't you done something rather than that reliance? And they still have education. I should have probably mentioned that. They've brought in education now as well to have people come in and talking about signs and symptoms of PTSD. And if you're feeling this, and which is all great, but once again, the issue there is the reliance is on the individual And that's where it's got to be removed. Now, accumulated stress does very physical things in the brain. And until it is addressed early, it can clearly have lifelong and potentially life-ending results. Let's have some music. And after the break, we'll talk about how bad it got for Simon and how we can bring more understanding to the illogical decision-making that can come with post-traumatic stress. Welcome back. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Simon talks in this next section about suicide and about his battle with it and about the part of him that can see now that it would have been incredibly selfish. But at the time, it was the least selfish thing that he can think of doing. Um, People describe suicide as being a selfish act. But the person, when they're in that that zone and they're not there's no cognitive availability there that you think you're doing anything but being selfish but when you're cognitive you go wow that would have affected so many people and that would have been a selfish act Mm -hmm. but all you think is that you're relieving the pain of your loved ones because you're an indictment to them and your own pain so you think it's not a selfish act at the time and i've brought my back use like myself back using um you know my various, you know, mindfulness and things like that techniques, but um, look up and twice on the edge of a cliff and my hand, whole hand, it's still got marks all over it, like punching into the rock, yeah. just saying push, push, kick yourself off, just sobbing and looking, you know, photos of my children and my wife and saying goodbye. And at that time I was thinking I've got to do this for them as a non-selfish act. Mm. But then when I used like mindfulness and I brought myself back into, you know, the, the time I was sitting there and I remember there was birds that flew past and things sitting on the cliff and the waves and I started bringing, you know, myself back into it, still crying and sobbing and my hand was bloodied everywhere. Is It brought me out of that and I started recognising having that cognitive ability then to go, you know, I, I can't leave them. I can't do this to them. But when I was in that trance, I drove to North Head and it was a trance and that I've got to do this because I can't do this to them anymore and I can't deal with this pain anymore. So you actually don't feel as though you're being selfish. So I tell people that because I know a lot of people who have done attempts, like 
that they get really offended by that because they're in such a dark place that there's no cognitive reasoning there. I mean, if you're going to commit, you know, I don't like using the word commit, but if you're going to suicide, it's because you're trying to do something that you believe is an unselfish act because you're cognitively not there. But when you are cognitively there, it's not the right way to go. And that whole word of um, commitment, once again, I come, I come back to that with you're not cognitively thinking even if you do um being in the police and coming from the police i've even investigated uh, probably over 100 suicides or different aspects of suicide and people have planned suicide but once again they're in a trance with that plan even if it's over a period of time that they believe what they're doing is trying to release the pain of the people they love but also the pain for themselves they're in a really dark place and it's not so much that um it's not so much that it's a, a, a commitment. It's more about a uh, a way of relieving the pain. It's just pain that you see you're projecting and it's the pain that you're feeling within. And people write um, death messages. People then, you know, even go to the state of or, or, or the form of, um, you know, saying goodbye to people and, um, yeah, giving away their goods. And these are all signs and, um, you know, things they might say in, in, you know, on Facebook or social media or whatever it may be and saying, you know, this is, there's always signs there. There's always certain signs that we can look out for that someone's not coping. And sometimes um, it can be very much the case that the signs can be that a person who's normally an introvert all of a sudden becomes an extrovert. Mm-hmm. And due to that, that's a change in character. And so they've obviously made up their mind in regards to what they're doing. Um, but I don't think the right word is commitment. Commitment is just not the right word. And and it, 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 shouldn't, it shouldn't be used in regards to suicide. It's more about ending the pain. And that's the ultimate goal yeah. and ending the pain for loved ones and for yourself. Other people have shared with me that it's like you're not in your body or it's like someone else is in your body. And when you describe being on the edge of a cliff and coming back, it, when I hear that you are smashing your hand against the rock, to me that's saying, it's almost like someone saying, come back into your body. You know, you're, you're trying to say push, push, but the pain brings you back into your body. It makes you very physical, which is part of mindfulness. It's that first level that's saying be, be in the moment and pain gets you in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think that did play a, a major role. The mindfulness of having the photos of my family and this is where I was at a push-pull scenario. I was in that trance exactly and it was like an out-of-body experience where I had to end the pain for them. I couldn't deal with it anymore and I had to end the pain for them. I'd put them through too much and I punched the rock almost to force myself because I was getting angry at myself in this trance that I wasn't going ahead with what I wanted or thought I wanted to do. And I think there is a, a, a definitely an idea there that the, the trigger of that pain by punching the rock, I don't even know how I didn't break my hand. Um, I think at first I didn't feel a thing didn't feel a thing it was just numb I was numbed out didn't feel anything but I think seeing my hand and you know feeling that pain eventually come in and 
you know, crying and sobbing and looking at the photos of my family and then, um, you know, being in the moment and seeing birds go past and just the ocean and things like that, it sort of brought me back and I looked at my hand and it was almost a mindfulness thing where I looked at my hand and I went, geez, look what I've done to myself. Um, but hitting the rock at first, there was no transition of pain to my mind. I was in a trance. Um, but I did come back around. I think it was that mindfulness of looking at my hand, you know, being in the moment, crying, and then looking at my family and thinking about the cognitive side of me came back, thinking about what it would mean if I wasn't around for them. Yes. And I think that stopped me when I picked myself back up and I got back into my, you know, my truck, my ute, and went home and covered up with bandages my hand with my first aid kit and said to my wife I did it you know lied once again as you do but I said you know I did it doing gardening and that and um but it was a case that at that time I just wasn't cognitive and um it's it's just really it's a really hard thing to explain but you are in a trance that that I think that's helpful for the families who are left behind to understand that it's uh, even though they feel that it's a selfish act. And as you say, when your cognitive skills are there, it is a selfish act. The ripple effect is enormous and goes through generations. But at that time, there isn't the ability sometimes to reason like that. And that's where the mismatch of, you know, you don't think you're being selfish, you're being, you think you're being selfless. So, Simon, can I ask, what was the turning point that's taken you from being, as you said, how many suicide attempts? Four, but I've also had suicide ideations and okay. things like It turned around, I had, I guess it was, it was quite, it was a moment of clarity for me. I, I had my last attempt, which was the one, I had an attempt with a firearm at work on my final day, working as a detective sergeant in the police. Then an overdose attempt, and then another time on on a cliff. Um, but I went to my favourite beach, and it was after that last time I just spoke about where I was punching the rock, and I was going through um, hell and high water with the insurance companies. Um, so what was happening was, without you know, unbeknownst to myself, is I'm told by my psychologist and psychiatrist, you know, go out, go for a walk. You know, get yourself out of the house because I, I did formulate depression as well from post-traumatic stress disorder and so I'd go and do those things and it'd take me sometimes an hour hour and a half to get out of the house to do those things and all of a sudden I got a dossier from the insurance companies to deny my claim and using photos of me walking my 18 month old little baby girl around the corner to get a coffee and saying that I wasn't sick. And, but it took me an hour and a half to even get out of the house to do that, to get the fortitude up, because I just wasn't coping. And I was trying to express them so much. I joined the police at 19, wanted to be a policeman from the age of 10. I lost my career. Like, th this to me was such a huge thing. I, had, I lost my identity. I lost who I was. I lost... Everything about myself, I, I didn't feel like a man anymore. I was known as Simon Gillard, Detective Sergeant, all my all my friends and everyone who knew, my family, and all of a sudden, I lost everything. Yeah. Didn't feel like a man, I didn't have an identity. It was really difficult, and I don't think they really grasped that, like the, the seriousness of losing my career, because I tried to hold on for two years without telling anyone. Mm -hmm. 
I was having sleepless nights, breaking down, going out into the backyard and crying so I'd hide it from my wife, going to work with no sleep. Like one week I think I had eight hours sleep in a week from having nightmares, night terrors and going to work and just no, like, no concentration and really struggling and then having to switch on and just feeling depressed, feeling stressed, feeling down. And so what happened is I, I ended up going to that cliff where I punched after receiving that dossier from the insurance companies because there was photos of my whole family, my children in the front yard, like play dates my kids were having, photos of my wife, just all of these photos. And I thought, I'm not protecting my family. How can I let this happen? Why are they doing this to me? Like, what does that prove? And it was such a contradiction from me trying to get healthy and when I did catch them a couple of times, actually trying to follow me and things like that, instead of going to the gym, I went home and cried on the couch. Mm-hmm. I called the man following me. Instead of doing that, I just looked at him and I shook my head and I said, why? It's such a contradiction. It's so counterproductive. I'm trying to get better, but you're making me sicker. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is I that they declined my, my claim and all that sort of stuff. And... When you're really sick, it, it, it means a lot to, to know you have that, um, you know, that financial support because I've got three kids, I've got a wife, and, um, and, and it's really hard. And you almost feel like you're a, you're a liar. They think you're a liar. So sometimes they, like that suicide attempt I had, it was almost like I'm going to show you as well. Absolutely. It was like, what you're doing to me, I'll show you. How dare you? Like, it was a 300-page dossier. Yeah. But I went to my favourite beach, and this was probably a month or two after, and it was Freshwater Beach. And <laughs> I remember sitting there. It, it still makes me a bit, wow, how I, I'm still here sometimes. But I sat on the beach, and I looked up at the cliffs, and I remember going... I'm not up there, I'm down here. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna get back to my passion and my purpose, and that was to help people. That's why I joined the police. So I stood up, I dusted the sand off me, got back in my ute, drove home and started looking for ways to get back to what my passion was. And I thought, you know what, just pay me or don't pay me the insurance companies I'm gonna I'm gonna not I'm gonna accept it but I'm also going to be positive and I'm also going to have hope for the future for myself and my family and so I started looking at ways so I started um, doing lifeline presentations um, just all voluntarily and you know and then sort of discuss with my wife and things like that and maybe let's I don't know, look at a book. And so got in touch with a um, ghostwriter, as they're called, and met her and she, you know, really loved my story and thought, you know, there's something she'd really been loved to do as well. She actually wrote Taria Pitt's first book as well. Um, Libby Harkness is her name and she was lovely and we got on really well. And so we wrote a couple of chapters and did a synopsis and we sent it out to about five or six of the big publishers and, um, it was very difficult doing the book. It was cathartic, but it was really, really hard. Um, it took a lot out of me because I had to relive everything. 
And what happens when you have post-traumatic stress disorder is your concentration lapses, but you also try to block out a lot of the things that caused you the issues. Um, So started the book and we sent it out and um, I think three out of the five or six publishers were interested. We ended up going to Penguin Random House and um, I just started motoring from there and the Today Show and the Daily Edition and 25 radio stations and Women's Weekly article and all these things started happening and I started seeing that my story was helping people and I was getting hundreds of emails from my book like it was a year and a half in the making and Penguin Random House took me on and promoted it with them and um, I just started getting these messages from around the world as well saying your book has saved my marriage with my husband and my marriage with my wife it makes sense now because so many emergency services military just even the wider community from a lot of a lot of people have post-traumatic stress from um, childhood so even those types of things there's a reason and an underlying reason behind a lot of things that take place in a person's life um, things such as um, alcoholism I, I, I went through that I was using alcohol and gambling as a way of um, numbing myself so I didn't have to have the triggers and flashbacks and memories of, you know, the murder investigations or the you know, pedophile matters and all the things that just really caused me my poster. So I tried to numb that out by drinking or gambling. But what goes up must come down. So it doesn't last. And um, I, I just kept progressing and I thought, I'm going to keep going here and I still need to practice self-care. I've been presenting at conferences. I've been, you know, presenting to corporations, to high schools. I presented last week um, for a 1,000 students at Waverley College um, for RUIK, become an RUIK ambassador, an ambassador for the Black Dog Institute, an ambassador for Australian Rotary Health, which is awesome. I just did a promo for Australian Rotary Health yesterday for them, which is um the hat day lift lift the lid on mental illness which is fantastic and a great cause um so all of these wonderful things and i'm going around the country doing presentations i'm going to hobart i've been to queensland going to adelaide so it's just gives me hope and i've found my passion again so there is always hope and once you and my biggest thing i tell people is early intervention is huge is so key but find your passion again. Find what you really are about and who you are. Because when I lost my identity, I didn't know who I was. But I did. I should have known who I was the whole time. And that was my passion and my purpose. And you get your purpose from your passion mm. and which direction to go. In. And that's where I sort of try to tell people, what do you want to do? And you can achieve anything. You can come from the most adverse things ever and you can keep going and build yourself up and just keep going and don't give up and there's two sides of resilience and i formed it so well now is there's unhealthy resilience and healthy resilience and the the unhealthy resilience is endurement it's enduring adversity and it's enduring something that you're going to burn out and eventually you know what you're going to burn out and you're going to stumble and fall because you can't endure so what I've learned is, and what I practice is, um, is, is healthy resilience. And healthy resilience is, it's, it's basically learning as you go. And learning, I, I still have to see a psychologist. 
I still have to see a psychiatrist, and that's okay. It's okay not to be okay. Mm. And for me, that is my resilience to then do that from my learning and knowing who I am. Then I progress, and then I keep going to bounce back and never give up. So I always come back to square one. If I falter or something doesn't happen that I wished it did, if I didn't get an interview or I didn't, I missed out an opportunity, yeah. it always comes back to, okay, we can either lay down or we can use healthy resilience, go speak to my psychologist, go talk his therapy. Yeah. And honestly, like early intervention, like talking is the biggest therapy you can ever have instead of holding it in. And then I progress and move on again. Well, we're thinking about, isn't it, good and bad resilience, what we push through and what we actually should not push through and how quickly we should get help to avoid those more dramatic moments. Brought me a lot of understanding, particularly after last week's conversation with David Siter, to have the conversation with Simon this week. Let's go to some music and when we come back we are going to have the last section of our interview with Simon and he's going to tell us really where we go from here. Welcome back, you're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Well, we're coming to the end of the show so I'm going to give the last section to Simon without further introduction. He does it so fantastically himself. Let's keep it simple. At the end of the day and and to break it down to make it easy is... People just want to be heard, and it's it's as I, I keep saying, and it's so true. Talk is therapy, and just to let a person be heard, and you being another person being invested yeah. without judgment yeah. in regards to that conversation, they're releasing. It's a release, it and it's a release for them to go, okay, I'm normal here. I'm doing, doing yeah, that's good. And then if it needs to happen further for, you know professional help then you can encourage further action from there perhaps you know we go see someone from the eap or go see a psychologist or a therapist and things like that we can encourage that we don't have to be ourselves um and exactly right it's um like compassionate empathy is where you can't take on you have empathy for someone but you help them so the encouragement to go see someone is then you releasing that from yourself and, and empowering them and you're empowering them yeah you say wow you know what i know you can deal with it. that's it you've got what it takes yeah. you can do I mean, it i mean group therapy you all do that for each other don't you whereas one person might go into sympathy the other one goes no you know what look what you've just shared with us it's awesome thank you you've helped me because i didn't know i had that I was taking that on or I was holding on to that. Absolutely. So, so just, you know, for, for officers to be able to do that at the end of a shift, and it's different, but, you know, it's difficult with different shift workers, but there has to be a way to do it because this is, we're talking about people's lives and it's going to cost a lot more money and a lot more lives if we don't address it. And, it, and it, it's exactly right. And if, if realistically through all the research now, and that has been done, it comes down to two weeks. So I can't see why every two weeks have open dialect peer support, as I said, round chairs, so no one's the head echelon, everyone's just sitting around, everyone's equal. Mm. And it's about opening up and having frank open discussion for half an hour every two weeks for that team. If there's six teams at a station, Every two weeks, that team has their half an hour review, yeah. mental wellness review. How easy. And everyone 
can talk about it. And then if there needs to be progression in regards to that with the compassionate empathy to move on and encourage action to go see some an EAP or a counsellor. That's right. And normalise it. It's nipping it in the bud quite early, isn't it? Doesn't mean you're going to be on desk duties. Let's just get you the support that you clearly need and then let's get you back on staff because what you bring to the team is invaluable. And we don't want to lose you. Go and get some support and come back. In fact, well, you know, you can still be part of it. But you're working out. If someone has seen stuff that they actually can't get out their mind, then they need more support than that. It's a no-brainer, and it actually will save money at the end of the day. And my my biggest take on it is with the money that's put into all emergency, you know, first responders, military, the money that's put into training someone up and to getting them to that point to then lose them because you're not being proactive it's just reactive but it's too late and you're having a reliance on them i believe they're treated as a commodity not an investment and you've got to treat people who you work for as an investment you really do because otherwise if you don't you're going to lose them or they'll move along and it's just you know I, I honestly believe with the police and the feedback i've got for new south wales is there's over 16,000. 16,000 want to hear from me, and there's probably 50 who don't, because I believe I would raise a lot of points in regards to what's going on that the lower group of police aren't being treated like an investment, but a commodity. And there could be a huge exodus with the way things are now, because it needs to be done properly, and it needs to come from the very, very top down. To change it I, I don't want to see anyone you know this is what I'd say if I was a boss I don't want to see anyone not see someone or speak up actually as I said before actually quite frankly I'm concerned if you don't speak up you're a human being yeah. that's it it just needs that it just needs that cultural change and there's no more of the stiff upper lip and you know hold back because I mean we've learnt now what I used to call PTSD shell shock and battle fatigue and all of that because no one knew what was going on but you know look at our Vietnam vets what they've gone through and that because now they've become alcoholics or so many have suicided mm. even in the states there was at one stage 22 a day on average suiciding mm. just ridiculous numbers because of that whole thing of you're a man you can't say anything that's right I play rugby now still. I still I go boxing with mates and stuff, but you know what I cry. Yeah, absolutely. And it just can't be uh, it can't be just a band-aid effect and it it just needs to be solid change with uh, a lot of backing. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's um, it's any industry um, and, and and just corporations, it's anything, you know, because there's stress there and depression there's so much going on with you know stress if you lose your job and you've got a family all those sorts of things and you know keeping up with tasks these are all you know anxiety and stress levels that um you know one one person every three hours on statistics dies by suicide in australia at the moment like yeah so and, and you're exactly right there's there's changes that need to be made but they've got to be um thorough changes and from the top down and they've got to just not be a band-aid effect because that's where it just band-aids fall off so there has been a small change the police have introduced mentors but they're still opt-in scenarios and there doesn't seem to be any confidence 
that they will not be penalised for asking for help. Yet we want them to ask for help because we don't want our police officers to not have compassion. Otherwise, we encourage major mental health problems. And, you know, it you kind of can see a similarity between people who, who don't feel anything by from the atrocities that they're doing and asking our frontline workers to shut down those senses and those feelings and those emotions that tell them that something is desperately wrong. Talk is therapy. Police officers are not human robots wearing a uniform. They really mustn't be. Thank you, Simon. He spoke at this week's Rotary Breakfast and went into even greater depth about the experience he's had. And I genuinely take my hat off to you, Simon, and encourage you to keep getting that support for yourself as well as calling for the changes that you know are needed within the system. It will benefit all frontline workers. Now, next week, next week's show will illustrate this call even more. It's with Ray Karam, a police officer who started out as a country boy and ended up in the big city in Redfern Station, only to find himself also putting a mask on and holding it together till it nearly broke him. He is. Uh, they both. Both of the interviews are extremely well now, and I think there is a story to be told about how they managed to turn their lives around. Remember, regardless of what has or is happening to you in your life, you are and always will be you, which of course is amazing. Just as our newborn babies are, always in there. The key is to reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so you can experience when your body's trying to tell you something's not quite right and then seek support from the appropriate service, be that mental or physical health. And I do think that if your business doesn't encourage you to do that, you should do it for you because it's your body, it's your life, it's your health. The podcast for today's show will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website and on SoundCloud. And if you want to get updates, then please remember to like the at Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page. And all the links to those spaces are available from the Triple H homepage. Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you, to connect to the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be loved, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. See ya.